This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is John Doggett, CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the Zero for Zero bill at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Corn Grower CEO John Doggett next. America's sugar growers are among the most efficient and sustainable in the world. But billions of dollars in foreign sugar subsidies distort the global market and put U.S. producers at a disadvantage. Weakening America's no-cost sugar policy without first reforming the global sugar market would hurt family farms, jeopardize good-paying jobs, and weaken the supply chain that puts sugar on consumers' tables. A new bill called Zero for Zero takes action to zero out all foreign subsidies and level the playing field. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. John Doggett is the fifth CEO in the 60-plus years of the National Corn Growers Association. Doggett has a stellar career of representing farmer voices on Capitol Hill and believes the political climate today is more polar than he's ever seen. We are in such a toxic atmosphere, and no one wants the other side to have a win. In fact, what they want the other side to do is have a, a, a stunning defeat, and that isn't what this country's about. That's not what our democracy is about. Our democracy is not about finding two uh, ends of a spectrum and uh, screaming at one another across that spectrum. It is not good, but it is reflective of uh, the divisions within this country. Uh, I'm down in Florida today, here with my family in, in Tallahassee. Around here, nobody wears masks. When I'm in northern Virginia, you don't see people not, not wearing masks. I mean, that's just indicative of how how polarized things are in the countryside. And no wonder Washington is the way it is. How does that make it difficult for commodity organizations like yourself? You're already in a minority, but how is this polarized climate and even now as, as well, the COVID situation in Washington to be able to work with legislators and leaders on critical issues? Well, I think it's one is, uh, you know, you, there, you, there's a lot of restrictions on uh, meeting with people for, for a lot of different reasons, some of it's for security reasons, some of it for COVID reasons. But the other thing we're seeing a, a lot of is a lot of members of Congress are going home and they're, they're having carefully orchestrated meetings with constituents and, and only certain constituents. And uh, we're not seeing that, that open, everyone show up, the congressman's in town, and we're going to have a, a sit-down with the congressman and have 100 people in the room, and they'll talk about everything from Social Security to defense to farm programs to, you know, big tech. Uh, we don't see that anymore. We're, we're not seeing members of Congress reach out other than to, to their own base, and everybody seems to be going to their base, and that's a problem. They're not hearing from a diversity of opinions. They're only hearing from opinions that, that reinforce their, uh, their beliefs. And, you know, um, uh, we're a country that has, uh, you know, is made up of, of many, many parts. And uh, we're going to have to listen to everybody. And it's unfortunate when, when uh, politicians decide they're only going to listen to people that agree with them. So when we look at policy that's been written, whether it was the market facilitation programs that came uh, under President Trump or the reaction of the Congress to the COVID situation, 
dollars have been flowing to agriculture, but they've not been in the control of the agriculture committees in the legislature. Uh, is that going to come back and haunt us when it's time to write new policy? There will be attempts to do just that. And it'll be interesting to see where those attempts come from. Uh, they could come from the right, they could come from the left, or they could come from both. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But agriculture has a lot of money uh, thrown at it over the last few years. And, um, you know, it, it has not gone unnoticed. $26 billion worth of payments across the board in agriculture. And, and, and a lot of people, they picked up on that. With regard to the farm bill, farmers' priority over and over again was to provide risk management and risk management tools. Yet the mood of the nation, and I would suggest of many leaders in Washington, is about climate and about climate change. Will these two topics clash when Farm Bill uh, debate begins? It doesn't have to. It, it may, but it does not have to. Risk management can be tied to, to climate, climate to risk management. Uh, we can do both. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we, we do both right now with, uh, with conservation programs. We're going to tweak conservation programs to deal with climate and whether they're, you know, how much that's going to affect Title I, how much that's going to affect crop insurance. Um, I, I think there's going to be attempts to do that, and some of them may work and some of them may not. The corn growers were the first to the table in bringing along the Soil Health Partnership. What did you learn during that period of time, and what has how is that information helping now with even today's climate debate? I think the, the one thing that is, is really important about when you look at, at uh, the Soil Health Partnership is that it, it generated a lot of data, and it generated a lot of data across a lot of different farms, different types of farms, uh, different uh, geographic locations. So I think what it did is it pointed out yet again, uh, and this is something really important as we, we move into these policy discussions, and that is one size does not fit at all. Um, cover crops work really well for some producers, don't work well for others. And I think that there's been, uh, and just to use the, the cover crop as an example, I think there's been a, a lot of emphasis on uh, cover crops are going to solve a whole lot of problems. Well, I, I think that's way too simplistic, and it ignores uh, it ignores uh, geographic uh, differences, it, uh, climate differences, and and uh, a lot of different things. So I think it was good to have that data uh, being generated, and and it's going to be continue to be used for years to come. Has the corn growers' sustainability goals changed, or do you anticipate that they'll change? Certainly, they'll change as agriculture is constantly evolving. Growers are so innovative. We change what we can do, and I think that's the promise of those sustainability goals is that they're aspirational, and as we get closer and closer to those goals, uh, we ought to move the, the goalpost a little bit farther out, and, and I think that's a, that's a good thing for us to do. I think that uh, our farmers are, are saying they're looking forward to the challenge. So initially there was discussion that the Commodity Credit Corporation could fund a carbon bank and that Washington might get into the business of compensating farmers uh, initially for sustainability uh, activity on their soil. We already have companies that are doing that. We already had farmers that are uh, producing uh, crops uh, more sustainably than they have before. So how can Washington help? What are the things that Washington can do 
can that could be a catalyst for producers today to be more effective? There is nothing that farmers buy or sell now that does not have some regulatory system around it. Whether you're selling grain to an elevator or whether you're buying fertilizer from a retailer, all of those things are, are regulated to some degree or another. What we're looking at is right now we've got the Wild West out there. We have the Acme Carbon Company out buying carbon credits, but it might be completely different than the XYZ carbon company is buying them. Farmers don't, you know, we're, we don't know whether we're, we're talking about apples and oranges or we're talking about apples and aardvarks. We have a lot of players in the field, and everybody's got a different deal. And I think it's really hard for growers to take a look at these things when all of the contracts are different. Everything is different. Uh, it makes it really difficult uh, when there are so many disparate players in the field you kind of got to wonder how many of these places are, are buying these credits on the cheap and plan to turn around and sell them for a lot more money sometime in the not-too-distant future. Senator Bozeman was adamant that if there was going to be a particular program, that it would be the producer or the one who sequestered this carbon that would make more than the middleman or the person at the end. Well, I mean, you know, farmers sell wholesale and, and they buy retail and they pay freight going way, both ways. So we certainly applaud what the senator has said and we absolutely agree that the entity that is generating the activity that you want ought to be the entity that is getting them the majority of the, uh, of the compensation. Uh, that's the other part of this. There is no transparency in these, these carbon markets right now. So how do you know whether or not that farmer is getting his or her fair share? The Build Back Better Act that has been approved now in the House of Representatives headed toward the Senate, there's additional funds there for agriculture and some of that for conservation and for forestry. Do the corn growers have a position on the Build Back Better? Which version of the Build Back Better are you talking about? You know, what passed in the House, there are some provisions in there that we, we like. It did not contain the poison pill, and that would have been stepped-up basis. So the House version does not have that. If any version of this legislation has that in it, we very likely will come out in opposition. So it does not have that just yet. And there are some other provisions that we like. But whether that's going to be in the final bill at the, at the end of the day, we don't know. If uh, the legislative process is going to be pretty arduous on this, I don't think it's going to happen between now and the end of the year. I think we're going to be well into next year before this really has serious consideration in the Senate. Then you got to go back and have a conference committee and figure out how you're going to resolve the differences between the two. So we will know whether we support the final version when we have a final version and not before, because these are things uh, that are some of their parts, and there is no perfect piece of legislation, and there is no piece of legislation that is perfectly awful. So we'll find what's good, we'll find what's not so good, and make our determination at the end of the day, but it's not the end of the day. Looking at 2022, I think one of the goals of a number of people in this industry is that of certainty. And if there's any certainty for 22, it appears to be uncertainty. How much of a challenge now as corn growers are looking ahead to try and plant a crop for the coming season? I just had a, a call with a grower uh, a couple of minutes before uh, we got on this call, and I asked him, what are you going to do next year? And he gave me three answers in about 10 minutes. So, I, you know, I, I think growers are going to have a real difficult time, given that the where we are with input costs, the uncertainty as to what the corn market's going to be. I think growers are going to have a really difficult time making those decisions. We're not at that point just yet, but you know what? 
February, March, and April are going to show up here real, real soon, and people are going to have to make decisions. And so are you going to be looking at the market as a snapshot? Are you going to be a contrarian? Are you going to bet uh, that things will be much different by next fall? Uh, you know, these these are decisions that every grower has to make every year, but I think this, this one is going to be particularly difficult. There's a lot of discussion about the number of packers that are involved in the in the cattle that are purchased and, and processed here in the country. But I think we could easily look at the fertilizer industry and realize there are some there's a very small number of players, and the question of fertilizer price and availability for 22 is a big issue right now. Probably nine out of ten calls and contacts that I have with farmers, it's about fertilizer prices. And is there any resolution to be found, John? Well, I think for, for one thing, you know, we have several entities that control most of the market. Mosaic has an 80% of the market. I don't know if that's a monopoly in some people's books, but, you know, it looks like one. Another you know, fertilizer company has a majority of the, the nitrogen product out there. Uh, you know, and, and it isn't just that they have these, that they are controlling a huge swath of the of the marketplace, but that they are actively going out there and making sure that they do what they need to to increase that, and to go to the big commission say no, we need to we need to have even less product coming into this country from outside our shores when fertilizer prices are as high as they are. That's unsettling. I think that's very very concerning. I think the other thing that you know today we're very excited that the court decided that. Farm groups actually should be able to go ahead and, and file an amicus brief on some of these tariff discussions that are going on right now. But we've been opposed in, in that by Mosaic and by others. They don't want the farmer voice to be heard in these things. We think the farmer voice needs to be heard. There are concerns among some legislators about the supply chain, and it is admitted that the supply chain challenges are affecting farmers. Do you share those concerns? Do you call for hearings? Or what would you do or what advice or discussion would you create around this, again, as we're approaching a new crop year and at the same time trying to sell product to customers overseas? Well, first of all, and I think it's really, really important that we in agriculture realize that we are not the only industry, nor are we the only segment of uh, American society or actually society around the world that is facing shortages. Uh, my wife has been talking about what are we going to get for Christmas presents for the girls, for our granddaughters. You know, all those things are hard to get. And when you do, you're facing fertilizer shortages and other shortages in order to, to raise a crop, that's real. That's that's serious. And we're going to be looking at we need to have some oversight hearings, not to find somebody to blame, but to start looking at solutions to some of these things. We need to find some solutions rather than than constantly be after the blame game. John, shifting focus now to the Environmental Protection Agency, there are several issues there uh, with agriculture. And one of those is the crop protection products that farmers use. And some of the recent reviews of those products have been called into question of whether they were using sound science. Have the corn growers been vocal about this, and is this a real concern? Absolutely, we've been vocal, and absolutely we're concerned when the these decisions are predicated on the absolute maximum use every single ounce on every single acre that's not the way the real world works right now they're magnifying the use of these chemicals uh, many times over and no wonder they're going to come up with a different decision we think that it, it ought to be much more of a real real world application how are these things being used on the ground in the real world 
obviously EPA is not doing that. So when we talk to the renewable fuels industry, growth energy, and uh, the Renewable Fuels Association, they're concerned about the way the Environmental Protection Agency is administering the law of the renewable fuel standard. Do corn growers share those same concerns? Absolutely, and, and we have had a number of conversations with Administrator Regan. He over and over has said that uh, it is his intention to enforce the renewable fuel standard. We're still waiting. The extended opportunity to meet those RVO guidelines of years gone by, some said that was a gift to the oil refiners in the country. Absolutely. They keep kicking the can down the road. You know, in 2004 and then again in 2008, we passed legislation containing a renewable fuel standard. Uh, The one that we passed in 2008, which is now getting to be almost 14 years now, and the goal then in that legislation passed by a Democratic Congress and signed into law by a Republican president, we were talking about 32 billion gallons of renewable fuels by this point in our country. We're not there. And the farmers produce the feedstock. Farmers and others invested in ethanol plants and build a whole bunch of ethanol plants and and uh, soybean crushing plants, biodiesel plants. We did our part. The industry did their part. The only entity that hasn't done their part uh, is the oil industry. They have fought us every single step of the way. Why aren't we at 32 billion gallons of renewable fuels in this country? Because the oil industry has fought us tooth and tongue over and over again. They have spent hundreds of millions of dollars pushing back on us. And we've seen that in recent days here with some of the things that they're doing. I've been reading some news reports here about uh, ethanol is driving up the cost of gasoline. Well, that's a bunch of bunk, you know, but this is the same thing that they've done over and over again. We've disproved it over and over again. But you know what? Uh, that's that 10-second sound bite that the average consumer is, is hearing, and they're going, gosh, I'm paying a whole lot more for my gasoline. It must be ethanol's fault because I just heard about it on Bloomberg. That's so, a problem. Some have accused this administration of picking favorites with regard to energy and especially of their favor of electric vehicles over renewable fuels and the investment of dollars into each. Is picking favorites a fear? I think so, but you know, and I, the other thing is, I think that uh, a lot of when you pick favorites, uh, like it seems uh, might be happening, is there's the law of unintended consequences. You're hearing over and over again people who want to charge that vehicle in their garage when they get home at night. That's great, but just as long as there isn't another person in the neighborhood doing the same thing because they don't have enough electricity and they don't have enough infrastructure there to provide that electricity to that neighborhood to charge those vehicles. And we need to be thinking about that. We need to be thinking about what are we going to do with these batteries when they're, you know, their useful life is over. What are we going to be doing? About, you know, we, we don't have enough electricity now in certain parts of, of this country, California being one example, Texas at times uh, being another. How do we fuel our transportation system with an inadequate supply and with an inadequate infrastructure to fuel that system. We're, we're doing a lot of happy talk about how great electric vehicles are going to be, but you know what? They haven't solved the problems that are going to inevitably come when we move too much further than where we're at right now. One more with regard to the Environmental Protection Agency. It was the Obama administration that wrote a definition for what was a water of the U.S. The Trump administration unwound that definition, introduced their own, and now the Biden administration appears to be unwinding the Trump rule and coming up with the definition of their own, a revolving door of definitions. 
What's the concern from the corn grower standpoint, and especially with the recent unwinding of the rule back to a pre-2015 definition? You know, what is the target you want to be hitting? You know, we're leaving people in the lurch. They don't know what they're, they're supposed to be able to do or not do. Back in the Obama administration, we had the head of, of the water office at EPA and his staff come out to one of our members' farms in southern Maryland. And we found eight different places that we took them to on this farm and said, is this a wetland or not? And you know what? The folks that that run the program, the folks that wrote the the regulations, they couldn't tell you definitively whether they were or not. And I think that's a problem. When the people at EPA who who are responsible for the program can't tell you what the program is all about, we got a problem. John, one last area for us to cover is that of global trade. There has been discussion that perhaps this administration might be willing to try to join the CPTPP. Uh, Where do trade issues rank with corn grower concerns, and what thoughts would you have of expanded trade agreements? Well, I think we're looking at both challenges and we're looking at opportunities. On the challenges side, uh, we're certainly very, very concerned about our largest customer, and that being Mexico. And uh, the Mexican president has said uh, that Mexico is not going to import any GMO corn. How are they going to feed their livestock? How are they going to, how are they going to handle that? Uh, you know, it's, it's a political promise that probably is completely unworkable, but it certainly does raise a lot of concern for us. And what about exporting to countries that have very, very restrictive rules and regulations on the use of ag chemicals? So those, that's the challenge side. But I think on the, on the opportunity side, we need to be uh, engaged in a whole lot of free trade agreements around the globe because our competitors are. Argentina and Brazil are out there. They're looking for every opportunity that they can find to have new trade agreements with their with customers for their products. We need to do the same. John Doggett, we want to thank you for taking time to spend with us on this edition of Open Mic. John, it is open mic, and today, sir, you have the last word. Well, thank you, and I'm I'm uh, in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, we're going to be spending Thanksgiving with uh, our daughter and and uh, her husband and the two most precious granddaughters in the whole wide world. <laughs> we have a lot to be thankful for, you know, and we really do. Uh, we have one another, and we live in the greatest country in the world. Do we have problems? Absolutely. Guess what? This country has been built. Uh, because we've had uh, folks that have been willing to take on problems and work for the common good of all Americans. And I'm thankful that we live in this great country, and I'm hopeful that we can start turning that corner and going back to that that time when we all work towards a common good that benefits all Americans, no matter where they live or who they are. Our thanks to John Doggett, CEO of the National Corn Growers Association, our guest this week on Open Bike. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the Zero for Zero bill at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.